Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ironworks Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. And we are really, really excited about uh, today's episode. We're glad to have you all with us. We are in the middle of our series on creation, why we believe that when the Bible says God created the world, it means that. And when it tells us how he did it, it means that too. And a very common accusation that'll come against a Christian trying to talk about these things is, well, you're not an expert. You're not a scientist. You don't know what you're talking about. You just have the Bible. And I believe that the Bible is enough, but the Lord has, has been gracious and given us all sorts of other uh, avenues to explore, to defend his scripture. And we have a guest with us today uh, to whom you cannot make that accusation. Uh, we have Dr. John Baumgartner with us today. Dr. Baumgartner, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, thank you. So I want to begin just by allowing you to introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Uh, how did you come to know the Lord? And uh, what what is your occupation, your area of expertise? Okay. Um, I grew up in, in Texas, in the western part of Texas, on a farm. So I'm a West Texas farm boy, as far as my history is concerned. Um, I did not uh, grew up in a Christian home, so it wasn't until I was 26 and uh, already well into graduate school that I uh, uh, found myself in a <clears throat> college Sunday school class uh, where the class was going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And that was the first time in my life I'd been in, in a situation where uh, in in a group of people that were seriously studying uh, the Word of God, and uh, I found it quite fascinating. And uh, uh, God had prepared my heart, and I, I, I responded and found it. I was eager every Sunday to go to that study, and uh, it took a, a few weeks before I realized that the key question in view was just who is Jesus? And they were going through John's gospel and about a half a chapter a week, verse by verse. And uh, so uh, uh, I got a, a very good exposure to the word of God with, with a focus on the person of Jesus and the question of just who he was. And um, I'm not sure at what point, but uh, about two, two and a half months uh I had no doubt that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Hmm. And uh, sort of the, uh, what happened was uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I found out that the, um, a lot of the kids in the class, most of them were freshmen, sophomores in college. And the, the teacher was the director for Campus Crusade for Christ. And I, when I, I, I Learned that I, I started dropping in on some of the campus crusade meetings, and uh, I every every time they'd have a guest speaker, and often the topics were very good. One I remember one, the topic was, "Did Jesus really rise from the dead?" Mm. And uh, I said, "You know, I've I've really never thought much about that, but that certainly is a good question." And, uh, <laughs> and so, like I said, I, I, I was getting a lot of input. And then uh, this was in the spring semester, later in that semester, Campus Crusade um, 
start, they started talking about a spring retreat. And I said, you know, I, I, that'd probably be something good for me to go to. And so uh, I did. And uh, so I was away from campus and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, around Christians. And uh, one thing I, uh, they had a book table. I bought a, a book there about, it's entitled Revolution Now. It was written by Bill Bright, the mm-hmm. founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, it was in the, <clears throat> this was in the, uh, this was in the spring, when was that? The spring of 1970, right after the 60s with all the uh, activism on the campus. Yes, sir. And, and the point of the book was, if you, if you want to be a radical, there's nothing more radical than following Jesus. There's <laughs> nothing more revolutionary than following Jesus. And so I read through that book, uh, actually during the weekend. And uh, also the, the speaker at that conference was Josh McDowell. He had, oh. he had just uh, come back from, uh, I don't know, two or three years in South America and just starting his North American ministry. And so, uh, anyway, so you can see I, I had a lot of, a lot of pretty significant input. Yes, and it sir. wasn't until that conference, yeah, I'd, I'd already come to the conclusion that uh, Jesus was who he claims to be, who claimed to be in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. But it's, I realized, you know, that that understanding um, call for some sort of response on my part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so uh, anyway, I, 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 it was later the week, the week or in the middle of the week after that conference, just in my, in my room in the evening, I, 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 I said, Jesus, I had prayed a simple prayer, something like Jesus, I want what you're offering. It wasn't any more complicated than that. And, uh, you know, I didn't know enough at that time to expect my life would be any different. Uh, it was, just seemed to be the next logical step to take, uh, that kind of personal uh, interaction with Jesus himself. And so uh, it was a surprise, even the very next morning that I sensed my uh, that I was a something major had changed. I was a different yeah. person. And, uh, uh, and that, that weekend was, I realized, yes, something, something has definitely changed. Uh, my advisor, graduate advisor was from Europe. He had a party every weekend at his house for his students, his graduate students. And uh, that Saturday, I, I went to the party as usual, mixed myself a drink as usual, uh, usually I, I did it just so I'd relax and could socialize a little better. And uh, almost instantly I realized I could sense the alcohol impairing my mind. I had never, never sensed that before. And uh, I mean, that's just one little example. But primarily it was just uh, new, you know, eyes to see. It was like uh, everything was had been in black and white and now things started to be in technicolor. Uh, <laughs> That's wonderful. And, and I found myself with an intense desire to, uh, 
read the New Testament. So I started, even though I was in a pretty intense graduate program, PhD program at the time, uh, I found myself reading through the New Testament about once a week. Uh, it, was, it was just so exciting. And I also had discovered uh, that there was such a thing as a Christian bookstore. And I started <laughs> browsing and commonly uh, picking up books that looked interesting and reading usually a, a, at least one paperback book a week on things from authors like Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis. And uh, it was a time of incredible discovery. I, couldn't get like enough a, of it, huh? <laughs> no, curtain pulled back on a reality I hadn't even suspected to exist before. So in short, I had a, a dramatic conversion experience and, uh, and uh, found myself you know, very excited about what I had discovered. Wow. And, uh, now, you were, you were a PhD student, so what were you studying at the time? At that point, I was, uh, I was in electrical engineering in a program uh, uh, for uh, a plasma physics program, and the, and the objective was control thermonuclear fusion. Uh, you know, the, the promise of unlimited cheap energy, if, yeah. we, if that could be achieved. And so that's, that's what, the, what my focus was at that point. So, However, so, so much for the idea that Christianity is, is only something for ignorant people that don't know any better. <laughs> well, it, it's... Uh, for me, it was, I, I uh, basically, I, my dad was a, I would say more or less an agnostic college professor, and there just wasn't much spiritual um, emphasis in the home. I didn't have much input. And in, in some ways, I count that as a blessing growing up in the Bible Belt, and I, my perception afterwards was there are a lot of people a lot of my uh, classmates that were being uh, sort of vaccinated against the real thing, wow. a, a, a superficial kind of Christianity and, and not something that, you know, like, like what I had found. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I could be grateful that that didn't happen to me, that uh, you know, God worked it out for me to have a, a, uh, a, a, dramatic, uh, very vivid conversion experience yes, sir. Where, where, where there was no doubt that I was a different person, no doubt the, the reality of, of the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. and, and the Holy Spirit's work and the Ho Holy Spirit coming to indwell me. And, uh, and uh, so it, it was quite it just the beginning of, a, of an adventure that has continued for, let's see, 50, 53 years now. Praise so, God. <laughs> That's great. So, all right. So then let's, let's trace the story here a little bit. So you, you were studying electrical engineering. Is that what you ended up uh, getting your doctorate in? Well, actually uh, that was during the spring semester. And uh, so I continued to, you know, grow spiritually dramatically and, uh, Sort of, uh, well, during the summer, I went to a, what, what do they call it? Some kind of re retreat at Campus Crusade headquarters in California at San Bernardino. And uh, 
that was, I think, the main thing I realized there that be, becoming being a Christian could well affect my what I did as as a career. I had that that idea was I, I, that had never that thought had never crossed my mind before mm. up until then. And so as I came back, started the fall semester, and uh, I, I found myself asking, you know, is what what the world need needs most is is it just a, a is it another PhD plasma physicist? And uh, I had to say no, that that isn't what the world needs. The world needs Jesus. And so uh, one one morning, I I had real peace, confidence. I went to the registrar's office, withdrew from school. With, with I called the Air Force. I'd gone through Air Force ROTC, and when I gradu- did, graduated, uh, had my bachelor's degree and graduated, uh, I got an Air Force commission, but a four-year active duty, active duty commitment. And um, but they had la- allowed me to take a what they called an educational delay to go to graduate school. And uh, anyway, so I, I called the Air Force, said, you can assign me to active duty now. And then I wrote a letter to the National Science Foundation. They had given me a, a full ride, four year, a full ride scholarship for my graduate work. I said, I said, uh, I have found Jesus. I'm, I, I don't need your fellowship anymore. Wow. So, <laughs> and so what was their uh, reaction to that? <laughs> I, I could tell they were they were somewhat amazed, shocked. <laughs> didn't know how to respond, but thank me, thank me for letting me letting them know. So wow. <laughs> anyway, uh, so from there I I, I was assigned to uh, active duty in the Air Force, and I was assigned to the Air Force Weapons Laboratory in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, assigned to a a highly classified project, uh, which was to uh, build. Uh, it was the, the project was to build what was called the Airborne Laser Laboratory. It was a uh, the, a project to install a large, one of the world's, I guess, one of the largest lasers in the world in a refitted KC-135 transport plane to demonstrate that it was possible to shoot down missiles with lasers from, from, from the air. Dr. Dr. Baumgartner, was that at, uh, was that at Kirtland Air Force Base by any chance? Kirtland Kirtland Air Force Base. Yes. My my wife and I grew up in Albuquerque. I used to, with my grandpa, I used to, uh, we would get day passes onto Kirtland and we would go fly remote control airplanes off the auxiliary helicopter pad. (laughs) Um, So I'm, I'm super familiar with Kirtland. That's amazing that you were, we used to drive past, some of those sites and read all the signs and say, I wonder what they're doing over there. That says it's the testing, <laughs> you know, range for this and that. So that's just, that's just really, really cool. I didn't, I didn't, I've never met anybody who was involved over there. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was pretty, that was an exciting time. Uh, you know, I was a brand new Christian. I'd been a Christian less than a year when I was assigned there. And, uh, you know, I felt prompted to, uh, put a verse of scripture on my office door every day, a different scripture. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what would happen. Uh, <laughs> but what I, 
what I found was that the uh, uh, people people seem to be nicer to one another, uh, and uh, there's less uh, foul language, and uh, things seem to be uh, seem to be uh, happier. And <laughs> so uh, after that, so I, I decided to use one of the desks in my office for a Christian book table. And I said. I found other believers there. We started a noontime Bible study, and uh, we started using Chuck Spiss tapes for the study. Uh, I've and, heard of him. We <laughs> <laughs> uh, listened to about 20 minutes of Chuck Smith's teaching, and then uh, have the rest of the time we'd been discussing that passage. And uh, so that took the burden off somebody having to prepare it made it work very nice. After a while, we decided to do it. Start do it a second day of the week. Uh, one one day of the week new from the New Testament, other day Old Testament, and we got involved. Uh, we sort of took over the Protestant men of the chapel. Started inviting uh, born again people to to speak, and that got big crowds to come. And so the, the, the chaplains who oversaw that were pleased because they're, they were sort of uh, uh, evaluated on, on how, how many people came to their events. <laughs> and, and so, and then we, uh, you know, we had some special events. We started sponsoring a Christian movie in the workplace once a month. We, we uh, had a, a Christian a worship service, Christian, um, I'm sorry, a Christian Christmas service, uh, and uh, even had the boldness to invite the base commander to speak. And so, and it was a time of sharing the gospel. And uh, so it was, it was pretty exciting. It's you know, exciting. It's great. All kinds of ministry uh, opportunities and experience. So, uh, so I was, even though I was involved in highly technical work, very classified work there, God prospered that and, uh, you know, gave me great success in it. But, it, you know, at the same time was allowing me to um, uh, uh, learn, you know, being involved in ministry. And uh, I was single, lived in the bachelor officer's quarters, and I found, I, I, I found that uh, that I could get the um, the Bible on cassette, and uh, so I, I found myself listening um, when I would fix dinner, as I was going to sleep, when I'd get up in the morning, fix breakfast. So I was listening to Scripture several hours, at least a couple of hours a day, and um, so I think to me. Looking back, that was probably a, a major secret of my spiritual uh, growth and maturity, and it it, it, it was a little bit so. a little <laughs> prideful, maybe. But occasionally, I would ask one of my Christian friends to uh, open the New Testament at random and read four <laughs> words, unless you pick it up, <laughs> and, and see if I couldn't give. The chapter, if not the verse, from just four words, randomly opening up the New Testament. 
And uh, so uh, that's called hiding the word in, in your heart. Mm-hmm. I think so is what you call that. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, that isn't something that I came up with. I believe the Holy Spirit was prompting me in that way. And, um, you know, it, it, it I, I believe it, that experience, uh, that intense time in saturating my mind with the word of God, uh, you know, has served me, you know, the next 50 years. It's, it's, it was a huge, made a huge impact on who I am. And so uh, it did. Well, uh, let, let me ask you. So when, when did your interest in creation science get sparked at this point? Is this when you were working in the base or has this always been in your mind as a believer? As a, as a brand new Christian in the first weeks and months, uh, people knew I was, uh, you know, scientifically trained, you know, seeking mm-hmm. a get scientific uh, degree. And uh, so the issue of evolution commonly came up when I was at Christian events. And uh, for the first uh, month or two, uh, I would just sort of just like punching a, 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 a tape player back in those days. I would just, I would just, um, um, just quote all these, all these, what I thought were, solid evidences for evolution with all, with all the training I'd been I'd had. <coughs> and most people would back off. They, they, you know, they <laughs> couldn't, couldn't challenge it, but I, I, I started finally to encounter some people who weren't intimidated and would ask good questions and which caused me to think a little bit before just, just repeating things I'd been trained to, uh, trained to believe, sure. and uh, so it didn't take very long in, until I I saw that it was all a charade. That it was uh, evolution just simply could not be defended from a scientific standpoint. So it didn't. It only took I don't know two or three months before I I got my head straightened out on that. But as far as the uh, really um, coming to grips with uh, geology and earth history. Uh, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say it took about five years before I got that straightened out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was while I was in the Air Force, the, the church I attended invited Henry Morris and Dwayne Gish to do a weekend seminar at our church. And that was the first time I'd heard a good um, defense of the Genesis flood, all the the evidence for catastrophic uh, activity in the geological record. And uh, so that, that was all it took. I mean, there was, it was uh, evidence seemed uh, overwhelming even for the few hours of that seminar. Uh, So I, I, it didn't take any, any additional convincing for me to become basically what's now called a young earth creationist and believing in the importance of the Genesis flood. Now, for those of you who are listening, maybe are not familiar, Henry Morris uh, was the author of a book called The Genesis Record, which I actually have uh, behind me right here uh, in my office, which I used when I was studying Genesis, and uh, was the founder of the Institution for Creation Research. Is that is that right? Yes. 
Yeah. So very much a research. Yeah. A a big, big name in this conversation. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so after you encountered him and you saw that, what was the next step for you? Where did you begin to pursue this yourself? Okay. Well, I was at that point, I was uh, right at the end of my four year active duty uh, obligation with the air force. And, uh, you know, I was praying, you know, God, what do you have for me next? And uh, uh, I, 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 I felt like uh, with all the insight God had given me, it, it just didn't make sense for me to spend eight hours a day of my you know, best time working on sort of secular kinds of work. I had a sense, I had some pretty strong sense of God calling me to some, something else. Mm-hmm. And, but I was, and the normal thing to do in, in that day, if you're going to go into ministry, would be to go to seminary. So I, I filled out applications for several seminaries, and uh, I, I was accepted at all of them I applied to, and I even went and visited three of them. Uh, just to see what it was like. And, uh, but then I, I found myself somewhat disturbing. I, I, I found I simply just, I just did not have peace about going to seminary. Uh, I, I, and trying to understand what was going on, um, uh, I, 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 I realized, or I was, the thought that came to mind is that, God had given me, you know, great uh, understanding of the Bible. Uh, my supervisor in the Air Force allowed me to take off time to take a year of, of Greek at University of New Mexico. So I had at least a beginning, beginning grasp of Greek. And, uh, but the thing I felt like I was most efficient in was ministry skill and, and the ability to connect with people. Uh, you know, I was, had been, you know, somewhat of a nerd, you know, somewhat of, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was, I w- it was not uh, real good at, at uh, interacting with people. So um, anyway, after praying about it, uh, and also during my time in the Air Force, I'd had some contact with the uh, military ministry of Campus Crusade. And uh, anyway, I ended up deciding to join Campus Crusade for Christ and be a, a campus staff member where I would be immersed in ministry, uh, you know, most of my waking hours. So that's what I did. And, uh, uh, you know, God allowed me, uh, even before I went to staff training, this would be in the summer of 75, 1975, simply, uh, sharing with the, my Christian friends in the Air Force, I, I raised all my support already before I went, even went to staff training. God blessed in that way. And uh, so I went to staff training and was assigned to the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, uh, as soon as I got there, uh, they, knowing you know all the technical background I had, they decided to, my, my first project was to oversee 
the uh, classroom lecture ministry of an outfit from Texas called Probe Ministries. Uh, Campus Crusade was cooperating with them. Probe would come in and um, the students would set up guest lectures in their classes, go to their professors, ask if, if, uh, it'd be, if they would be interested in having a, a, a lecture by a PhD person on the, you know, something related to that class mm-hmm. from a Christian perspective. And uh, so in the course of that, uh, I had a conversation with a biology professor there. And he said, uh, uh, I'm not a Christian, but I know I have lots of Christians in my classes. And I know that what I teach, you know, the evolution I teach is uh, they're not not really pleased with. So, uh, but I've already covered that, the, the origins topic this semester. But if, if I could plan ahead, if he had had a speaker come next semester, I could, I could fit that in. So uh, anyway, I persuaded him that I would be, I was able, I was qualified to do that. And so he agreed to it. And so, uh, so that next semester, I, I spoke to a, a, a section of about 300 zoology students, first year zoology students. So that was my first creation, uh, evol- creation evolution lecture. First of many. Yeah, and the professor held the students accountable. He asked for five questions for his next hour exam. So it was uh, pretty pretty exciting. And uh, so uh, uh, as people found out that I did this sort of thing, I started getting invitations, especially from uh, local high schools. And uh, so there was... One month, I did 30 lectures in, in the course of a single month. And then I started doing, uh, I, I, as Campus Crusade found about it, I found out about it, I started doing lectures at Campus Crusade retreats. And then I found it was the most exciting thing was to do evening forums where, where we would plaster a campus with flyers mocking evolution and advertising this, <laughs> this event. And that never failed to, to get out, bring out hundreds of people, and including lots of graduate students and professors that were, you know, uh, very uh, earnest evolutionists. <laughs> so what we do, what I do is have about 45 minutes of slides pointing out some of the very huge problems with evolution. And then I'd open it up for Q&A. And uh, so it never fails. A very dynamic Q&A. You know, <laughs> at, at you know, one point, uh, I realized that the uh, skill I needed most was crowd control. There were times when there would be fights break out in the audience. <laughs> they start people stand up and start shouting at each other. Wow. <laughs> and but I I, I was pleased that I I won. I felt like I won every one of those events big. Uh, that, you know, there's and I, there's I, I had an advantage, several advantages. One, I had truth on my side. <laughs> Another is that 
I had the Holy Spirit within me to uh, prompt me and help me. And then third, I had control of the microphone. And so, <laughs> <laughs> Those are some good advantages to have. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that was, that was, that, that really launched me into creation ministry, even though it was just a sideline to, to my other responsibility, normal responsibilities as a Campus Crusade staff member. But some of the people in Campus Crusade, uh, after they heard me speak, the leaders suggested that I go to their headquarters and make this material transferable so other Campus Crusade staff could use it. And so the third year I was with Campus Crusade, I, I did that. And it was during that time that I had, I had some extra time. I could look into some of the issues that I'd not had time to to research very much before. And one of them had to do was with how does this new concept of plate tectonics fit in with the, the Genesis flood? And it didn't take very long until I realized that the uh, flood logically had to be, ha had to have been a tectonic catastrophe that uh, the, the Atlantic, and that's, the main data is the fact that the, the today's ocean floor, igneous ocean floor, uh, is all younger than much of the fossil record. And the fossil record is a, is a, a clear uh, evident, evidence for the flood. And so what that meant is all of today's ocean floor had to be produced since the beginning of the flood since roughly midway in the flood, all, of, all the ocean floor today had to have come into, into existence through seafloor spreading. And I realized this is, this is huge. This is a, and I, as I surveyed the creation literature, I could find no one who had reached that conclusion and published anything about it. And so, uh, so I found myself praying, God, what am I supposed to do with this understanding? Um, I, I couldn't imagine that, that he would be calling me to work on that hmm. because all my, I had not had a single course in earth science up to that point. And uh, so, uh, but as I sought counsel and prayed about it, I, I had a sense that God indeed was leading me to uh, go into that field. And so I, 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 I made the decision to leave Campus Crusade and to enroll in a graduate program at, in, at UCLA in geophysics. Uh, again, without any background in earth science. And uh, it was, I found it remarkable that the advisor, the graduate advisor I spoke with when I visited and looked into the possibility of doing it, doing that. He said, you know, I did this very same thing myself in graduate school. I switched from physics to geology. He said, I, I, it's my opinion that, that, that our field, that earth science benefits when people with other training, other backgrounds bring that expertise to bear in, in earth science. So he actually encouraged me to apply, which I did. And, uh, and then God proceeded to open uh, amazing doors to me there. First, I was uh, a little uncertain 
I, I realized this was a huge step of faith. If, if God wasn't really directing this in this way, I was about to waste some of the best years of my life. But uh, it didn't take long till I, I, it was clear that he had called me to that. And one of the things, uh, one of the uh, uh, amazing doors was the opportunity to do my graduate research at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. And uh, he, he matched me up with a mathematician there who had just the numerical technique that would enable me to build a 3D model of the Earth computer model that could model the tectonics of the flood cataclysm. And um, that's that's amazing. <laughs> and, and this this code, this 3D code, was the first 3D uh, program, computer program for modeling the Earth's interior. At the time, they, they said that, that capability was at least 10 years away. And uh, the reason is that computers would not be fast enough to do such large-scale 3D calculations. But what these what people, what they had, hadn't, uh, count, hadn't taken into account was this numerical method this mathematician had discovered, plus uh, the speed of the Cray supercomputers at Los Alamos, that combination enabled me to do something that the experts were saying was at least 10 years away. So uh, as people- Right just, place at the right time, I guess, huh? Yeah, God, God orchestrated it, put it all together, basically handed, my P, handed me my PhD on a silver platter with, um, but I, I did utilize the computer- training uh, experience I, I gained in the Air Force, uh, modeling, doing the, the design of that laser, uh, I, I had the competence and experience to undertake a project like that uh, at that point. So, Well, then anyway. let, me, let me ask you a little bit about that then, because I really want to get into some of these, these specific subjects with you. Uh, so what, what exactly were you able to demonstrate uh, in, and in your research there uh, related to, uh, you said the flood and everything. What what were you able to, to demonstrate, and how does that affect us as uh, Christians reading our our Bibles related to the flood? All right. Well, that that program that I developed as part of my PhD research. Afterwards, Los Alamos invited hired me, invited me to work there uh, in their computational fluid dynamics group, and offered me to. Uh, uh, wanted me, allowed me to work half time on my own research, knowing that it was related to the flood, mm -hmm. uh, again, a miracle of God. And uh, so what I what I've, uh, was able to, to show was how a, a cataclysm that could, that resurfaced the whole earth in just a few months time could, uh, could unfold, what the basic physics was behind that cataclysm. And it, it turns out that it involved uh, a runaway process where the, the, the surface rock layer, the plates, it's the technical term is the lithosphere, is able to peel away and sink into the earth into the, and, 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 and go all the way down to the core uh, at, at uh, speeds of like five miles an hour because of some properties, uh, rock properties that 
allow the rock to weaken under stress. And uh, so I was able to put that puzzle together, figure that out and model it uh, on the computer and show the, the mechanism behind the, uh, the flood cataclysm. So that was, that was very much my focus and God helped me put those pieces together. Uh, in those. So, so this isn't just then coming up with uh, you know, a, a religious fairy tale. Now this is, we're actually looking at how this was because something you hear very often is when you talk about the, the flood as a, as a possibility, you know, people will say that that's, it is completely impossible. It's completely mm-hmm. off the table, not even able to be considered, but you were able to uh, do run the computations and put the math together to show how this would. And, and in fact did happen. That's right. And from the very beginning, I was seeking to do it at the highest scientific level using the best science available. And what was, has been very exciting is to see those pieces come together and see it, that it is possible using the best science we have to demonstrate the uh, the uh, the viability, the the credit, the, the truthfulness of uh, of the flood, and and have the mechanism by which it took place, and uh, and have the computations to do it, be able to make movies of what happened, and uh, and defend it. Uh, I'm still. Uh, I'm, you know, having, being somewhat of a perfectionist, I'm still, uh, I still haven't sprung this on the the community at large, the earth science community at large. My close colleagues, the people that do the kind of calculations I do, they're, most of them are fully aware of what I've done. And uh, uh, there was a, a, a news story in U.S. News and World Report in 1997, I guess, where uh, uh, there's a person at Los Alamos that wanted to sort of, uh, you know, I don't know whether to embarrass me or anyway, he wanted wanted this to get out in the in the open. He was uh, somewhat of a he was an agnostic, probably an atheist, you know, mm-hmm. and and you know, not necessarily doing this for from friendly motives. But anyway, there's a he, he, he knew a reporter with the U.S. News and World Report, had him flown out to Los Alamos from Washington, D.C. He did this interview, and uh, they published a four-page article in U.S. News and World Report entitled The Geophysics of God, and basically <laughs> told, told my story, uh, showed uh, images from my tarot code, and uh, uh, and then interviewed my peers, my ge- secular geophysics peers, got their opinion of my work as a geophysicist. So that was that was pretty interesting. I, I was I was pleased how my peers were generally very positive about my work. Says that I was one of the top uh, numerical uh, geophysicists in the world, and and. Uh, and, and yet they, uh, you know, anyway, they, so basically prior to that time, you know, uh, only, only a handful of my colleagues knew what I was up to. After that article, essentially all of my colleagues in the, in the geophysics world were aware of what I was up to. 
And uh, it was interesting. I went to a workshop about two weeks after that article came out. It was held up in a little little place north of San Francisco. And uh, I was sort of wondering, you know, what, what's going to be the response <laughs> by, by all these colleagues? And uh, I guess it was a little, well, I, I found some of them came up, shook my hand, congratulated me for having an article in the, in the uh, popular press like that. And then there were others that wouldn't even make eye contact. <laughs> and, so and, th- this leads me to a question that I, I have, and I'm sure others do too. Uh, so for those of us that are not in the scientific world, um, you know, we're, we very much have to take other scientists word for it. Um, and when when someone comes out like you're describing, who you your your peers said this about you, I mean, you're working at Los Alamos, which is a very you know amazing thing to do. You you're known as one of the top numerical geophysicists. You you have your education, you have the the background behind you, and you come out and you say this is what the uh, you know the flood would have looked like. We believe that you know the the Bible is supported by what the the math and the science says, but then for whatever reason, all that credibility that you have, it's like it no longer exists. And it, rather than saying, wow, if somebody like that says that this is real, uh, it's, well, he can't be any good after all because he says something like that. Why do you think there is that that hesitation? Why, is there a pre-commitment to a certain point of view or is it just stubbornness? Uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I, w- I was pleased at the overall respect that my secular peers uh, gave me. They, uh, you know, they knew me well enough. They, they, they were familiar with my work. And so they, uh, you know, they, at least several of them praised my, my, my work. Uh, and, uh, and, and one of them had enough insight to, to, to see the, uh, where the physics, the critical physics was. And, uh, you know, uh, so so that they they were they were they were you could tell they were definitely thinking through uh, based on all their training and knowledge. Uh, was this possible? Was this really possible or not? And but the reason they you know, the reason they they uh, couldn't embrace what I had done is uh, uh, is that is it? Well, first, they are they are. Uh, just like the rest of the human race, they're they're in spiritual darkness unless they have mm-hmm. been born again. So they are, and but the I think the big reason is that uh, they realize that were they to come over to my side, they would they would experience a lot of rejection by the community and their, by their peers, and they just couldn't they just couldn't imagine uh, uh, forfeiting all of that what they had worked for all those years. Uh, so there's a, in other words, there's a lot of peer pressure, a lot of peer pressure in those circles. Uh, yeah. uh, the, so it's, it, you know, they've all been trained in, in, uh, in the major deceptions of our age. The, the fact that the age earth is ancient, that deep time is real, that evolution occurred, all of these things they, they've been educated in, indoctrinated in. And uh, it's not easy. It's not easy to um, put the puzzle together in a different way uh, sure. for them. 
And, and, yeah. and I believe until, unless a person is, is actually born again, you know, understands the gospel and, and has a uh, life-changing transaction with Jesus, that it's, uh, it's not impossible for them to make that change. Mm. Yeah. Now, a minute ago, yeah, let's uh, continuing this this thread here. Uh, you you referred to Darwinism as a charade, and uh, you said uh, you know the the lies and the deceptions of our time. So Darwinism, the idea of evolution that uh, things have moved from small single celled organisms to uh, the multi celled complex things we have today. There's a whole other host of assumptions that come through that. Uh, you you hear somebody say that Darwinism is a charade, and you know you're you get labeled very quickly. So what what uh, what justifies us in saying something like that? That Darwinism is a is a charade and and a deception. It seems to most folks as well. This has already been figured out and and it's settled. So uh, what makes you say that? Well, there are. I, I actually have a talk where I give. I provide 10 fatal problems for evolution, but I, I, and I'll only summarize a couple here. One is the just the unimaginable complexity of, of living things mm-hmm. at the molecular level, that, that uh, there are a, a, a large number of, of miniature machines, nanomachines, there's, there's one that I use when I talk on this subject called, uh, it's called ATP synthase. It's a, it's a, a, a machine, uh, a rotary machine. It's, it, spins, it spins at about 10,000 RPM. It's run at least in, and it's, it's present in all organisms from bacteria to plants, to animals, to humans. And, uh, and, uh, just a few, the, the machine consists of about 90,000 atoms, and they're all, you know, they're, they're, it's engineered where that each atom, it makes a difference. It's, it's very carefully designed, economically designed, and uh, this machine basically reconstitutes um, the uh, basically the, the basic energy currency called ATP. Most cellular processes use ATP as their energy source. And so that has to be, uh, once that energy has, it's like a little battery, once the energy has been removed from that molecule, ATP molecule, it has to be restored again. And that's what this machine does. And it's, it's so important in a, in, in a human, in, a, in, a, in a, us, that uh, uh, well, just to give you an idea of how much ATP is is recycled, reconstituted uh, per day, it, it's approximately equal to our body weight. So if you weigh 180 pounds, your body during the day and night, each day is reconstituting about 180 pounds of ATP. Wow. That gets reused. You have only about one and a half ounces of ATP in your body, and it gets recycled every about every uh, every minute and a half, I think it is. And so, uh, uh, so this is a this is a huge process, a major process, and it, it's it's accomplished by this very in, intricate machine. 
made up of multiple proteins that come together. And like I said, it's a rotary machine. The, uh, the rotating part spins at about 10,000 RPM. So our body at a molecular level is filled with these machines. Many of them uh, move with moving parts. There's, there's one single protein that's able to fold up. It starts out as a chain of amino acids linked together like a chain that folds up into a 3D structure and becomes a robot, a, a, a biped robot, a, a two-footed, uh, two-footed robot that carries things around the cell. And, uh, and there, there are, I think there are millions of these in each of our cells. It's just, if you look at what what has been discovered is going on in our cells, there's absolutely no way that kind of structure can, can arise uh, by any kind of evolutionary process. It's all or nothing. It, has, it all has to be there uh, for, for the cell to, to work or the cell doesn't work. You don't have a, you don't have a viable cell. Right. You, you can't build a piece of that and then just leave it and then add another one later. Like it all has to be working at the same time right. or there's no energy. To there go around. Once. Has to be all, right. It, I think it's very easy uh, to say like, well, it's just simple things became more complex things. And you know, right. what, what's the, what's the big deal, but to, to consider how complex, even what you call a simple thing is, it, it gets down to the point where there, this, you, Am I right in saying you you simply don't have this is not something that could just spontaneously come about? I mean, you described one system, but there's how many other systems like that that are just as complicated that are all going on at the same time? About a hundred thousand different proteins in our in the human human makeup, and, and so the other and then the other challenge, of course, becomes that people are saying that this is being slowly done by a blind brute force system that removes anything that isn't functioning, right? The idea is, hey, if, if an organism isn't functioning correctly, it dies, it can't reproduce. So that, that to me is like, well, how are you expecting through accidents, these systems that have to all be there to be built by, by pieces, you know? Yeah, that's a, the, the second major argument that I would raise. That Darwinism basically appeals to a, a trial and error process and uh, supposedly sorting out uh, the effects of, of mutations and, uh, you know, uh, culling out the, the, uh, the bad the effects, the, the uh, effects of, of bad mutations and accentuating good mutations. Well, one thing is that there are you know, almost no good mutations. <laughs> the overwhelming majority of them are destructive or bad. It's at least it's it's at least it's on the order of a million to one bad mutations for every good mutation. And I would say a person is hard pressed to point to a single good mutation. Some of these that confer, you know, insecticide resistance, or mo- almost all of those involve breaking something that. Uh, Make the make the organism less viable in its in its normal environment. So it's uh, basically mutation is you know does not produce many good things. But then even al- allowing for even even uh, say 
instead of being one in a million, if you allow one in a thousand being a, a good mutation, and then look at the, the fact that you need, you're going to apply a trial and error process, you can, you can ask how many trials are there? There's, a, there's an upper bound on how many trials there have been in the history of the earth. And, you know, you can give, let's, let's give, let's just say the earth has been around for four and a half billion years. And, and currently there's something like 10 to the 30th power of, of organisms uh, coming into existence a year. Most of them are bacteria in the ocean. And uh, let's just say that that's been going on for, you know, four and a half billion years. Uh, uh, that you, you end up with no more than 10 to the 40th power number of trials available. That, that's, the, that, that's the maximum number of uh, tries you have to get a, say, a new protein, a new, uh, some new configuration that would be beneficial. Well, it turns out that because these proteins, uh, they typically consist of at least a hundred amino acids in the chain, more more typically two or three or four hundred or even a thousand. Uh, you you calculate how many tries it takes it takes to evaluate those. Uh, Ten to the fortieth power is nothing. You can't you can't even evaluate the possibilities the of, of for a single simple new protein. There's that, 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 so that Darwinian approach has no way of working, this trial and error process. There are not enough trials to make any difference at all. That 10 to the 40th would be the total number of trials for all organisms over all time. Uh, and and it, like it said, you can't even get, you can't even find one new life protein that way. And so, yeah, so it's, 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 it's very interesting. It's irrational. It's just completely <laughs> irrational, non-scientific. You know, it's it's utter foolishness. Now, it's interesting that you know you consider something like that. All right. Well, we're we're still using this theory provided by uh, Charles Darwin in the 1800s, who he didn't he wasn't able to see this this kind of thing. We know so much more about this now, mm-hmm. and yet what is striking to me is that we're still holding on to this theory brought up by a guy that was looking at birds, looking at finches and various things who could not have known the, the amazing complexity and, and the math and the numbers that are around this. So why, why has this not been reevaluated after, even if someone is not going to necessarily become a creationist where this is still as, as strong a theory as it ever was in, in most secular contexts, but you know, it's, it's, it remind it just it seems silly to me. It's like what what are we still holding on to from that long ago? Learning as much as we've learned. Why is that? Well, Jesus in John three say says that uh, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They 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 don't come to the light. That that uh, human beings are fallen and they love darkness rather than light, and so. These deceptions—they're—they're they're vulnerable to being deceived, and 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 Satan—that's his main, main tactic, main primary way that he captures people is by deception, and so we have have these major deceptions in our day, of, uh, of 
of, of evolution, of deep time. Those are two of the big ones. Uh, and, uh, and, and so people, the whole intellectual community has been taken in. And, uh, you know, the price, if you, if you, uh, if you deviate from that party line, deviate from that dogma, you're quickly ostracized. And so most people who might be inclined to doubt are uh, quickly brought into line if they, you know, are, are that, you know, they're, they're not, certainly don't have the, the courage to, uh, to be vocal about the, the, the problems. So uh, anyway, yeah. I believe Christians, we're the only ones that are, have the ability to point these things out. And sadly, we're, we're not doing a very good job of, of doing that. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, you know we're, we're called to make disciples. Uh, you know, I'm called to be making disciples and making uh, people help train up people that are, are, are have the training and ability to point these things out. And, uh, you know, I'm doing it in small ways, but somehow we need, we need, uh, uh, I think we need more, you know, we need, need to bring to bear spiritual resources and pray and ask God to, to be raising up people. And uh, we, we, you know, we could say, what's wrong? Well, I, I think we can, we, we could be more engaged than we are on, on uh, in the things that God has instructed us to do. Right. Well, I've, I myself have seen in, in the theological world and, and in the uh, area of biblical studies that uh, the trend with, uh, among evangelicals is to the the line that they push now is we really Genesis has nothing to say to us scientifically one way or another. Uh, we need to just get the the lesson that it's trying to teach us the uh, thematic part of the Genesis story, and w- embedded in that seems to be this admission that the the creationists have lost on this one. And we're going to continue to lose the, you know, the kids are going to keep leaving the church unless we, we bend on this uh, and to start making ways for, for evolution. I, I'm guessing you don't have uh, a very high opinion of that, that perspective. No, no, I don't. You never, you never win by, you know, giving away the farm, compromising, compromising like that is, you know, is fatal in my view. So, and, and I, I believe creationist, do have answers. God has given us answers, and uh, uh, we need we need people, b- pastors, Bible teachers that have the backbone to 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 believe the Word of God and uh, to teach it and without compromise. And uh, you know, it's and there there are people like myself that are available to. Uh, come to churches and speak, and uh, uh, so it's it's. Uh, we just need to. We've got the research. I believe we've got the answers. We've got the got the resources. We just need the the uh, determination, the courage, courage yeah. and determination to do it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you then. As in talking about that, you mentioned deep time a couple times. What do you mean when you say deep time? The deep time. By that I mean this idea that 
that came to the forefront about 200 years ago, that the earth is not just a few thousand years, but much, much older. At first, it was millions of years. Now it's several billion years in age. And uh, sort of the, 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 the key thing that, that uh, uh, sort of uh, enabled the other side to move forward with confidence was uh, what's been called radioisotope dating that came to the fore in the first decade of the 20th century. And, and uh, uh, at that point, the atheists celebrated greatly. They felt like they had the, you know, they, they, they had the Christians on the run. There's no way they could defend the Bible anymore. And, uh, but uh, sadly, well, then uh, it wasn't until, uh, well, I, I would say it wasn't until around, well, the first, the first major um, uh, response, answer to deep time came in, in, as a result of what was called the Radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth Project which uh, ran from 1997 to 2005. And uh, we, had, we, we addressed head on this issue of, of radioisotope dating, Ad addressed the question, why do these radioisotope methods give consistently ages, <coughs> in, in many cases of billions of years when the, uh, when the Bible says the earth is only a few thousand years old. And um, there were seven of us, seven PhDs that uh, originally on this project. Our first meeting, we, uh, we, as our devotional, the first time we met, we uh, read the passage about David and Goliath. And, uh, you know, we acknowledged that that was the sort of situation we were in, that uh, there was a Goliath out there, and, uh, you know, God had, had called us to go and take, take out Goliath. And so we are saying, are we, are we up to that? Are we, is that? And so it was, yeah, we, we decided yes. And so uh, God, God uh, even though we were, had diver some divergent outlooks to start with. God brought us together, got us all going in the same direction. And in the end, he gave us several uh, uh, multiple independent lines of evidence pointing to, of radioisotope evidence pointing to the, to the conclusion that the earth is thousands, not billions of years old. What were some of those lines of evidence that came up? Okay. Um, the, uh, they, they're a little on the technical side, so bear with me, but the, in my view, the, 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 the most uh, clear-cut one uh, was, had to do with how fast, well, let me just lay a little, give a little background. Go ahead. It turns out that there are minerals in, especially in gr granitic rocks, granite, uh, a, a, a tiny mineral called zircon, it's zir zirconium silicate, uh, 
and it turns out that the site in the crystal where the uh, zirconium atom lives is large and it uh, has the same, the zirconium ion has the same charge as a uranium ion. So that the uranium finds a nice home. It, it, it can feel comfortable inside of a zircon crystal. Therefore, uh, commonly zircons have as much as 1% uranium uh, re replacing the zirconium uh, atoms. So there, these, these zircons are radioactive. And so the uranium uh, has this property of undergoing radioactive decay, emitting uh, subatomic particles, uh, in particular alpha particles consisting of two protons and two neutrons. And so it, it, if you've got uranium, uh, a, a, a certain fraction of those uranium atoms every day are going to transform into a different atom, a different type of atom by emitting this subatomic particle. And uh, so the, it turns out that this alpha particle, two neutrons and two protons, is, is identical to the nucleus of a helium atom. So uh, basically these alpha particles, after, after they slow down and, and, their, and their kinetic energy gets converted to heat, they become, they grab electrons from the environment they're in and become atoms of helium. So it turns out that there is as helium inside these zircons as a result of the uranium decay. All right, so that's that, that's fascinating. Keep going. This is this is great right. for me. <laughs> All right. So, one thing that was discovered in the 1980s uh, uh, by a scientist, uh, a believing scientist, worked at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. He he just he ran some tests and and actually actually others had noticed this also. That there is that these zircons retain helium, and and uh, uh, surprising amounts of helium. But uh, so so we our our sense was that this is because helium is the um, is the smallest atom. It's a, it's a a uh, a noble gas. In other words, it doesn't form, make, have any kind of chemical bonds with any other atom. It's uh, neutral. It's uh, it. So it leaks. It leaks through solids well. In fact, helium is used to detect leaks in vacuum systems. You put a little helium in the system, and then if you have a, a helium detector on the outside, you can you can locate where where, where the any, any leaks in the system. Mm -hmm. So helium, helium, basically the message is helium is able to uh, leak out of solids very, very readily. Uh, anyway, we, we suspected that uh, there was, was not impossible if these rocks were really billions of years old for, for them to have retained most of the helium 
to to modern times if mm. if if the rocks were that old so but at that point no one had ever measured how fast helium migrates through zircon so we we came up with a research plan to to make make those measurements it turned out that there was a, a lab in california that could make to, could could do those measurements so we contracted with that lab through a third party and we 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 got some zircons uh, and uh, uh, somewhat tedious process selected about 2000 zircons of the same size from this one granite sample and sent them to the lab to have them measure what how fast helium leaks or, or moves migrates through zircon and what they found was that the, the rate they found was high uh, so high that there was, there was no way that helium could have been contained in the zircon uh, for uh, more than just a few thousand years and that the the, uh, the actual measurements that were made at, for the temperatures of the zircons in this rock formation where we got the granite uh, it would it would um, the the uh, amount of time that would have elapsed was six thousand plus or minus two thousand years. That's what <laughs> that's, they. That, that's not fourteen billion. <laughs> yeah. Well, and can I ask you, Doctor Baumgartner, like it? So just maybe just to to summarize that for people like me who are not uh, earth, earth scientists, <laughs> um, but like if I'm understanding what you're saying, it's it's almost similar to how the carbon fourteen process is supposed to work. That you're basically measuring one radioactive isotope and how it decays into something else and because scientists kept pointing towards the helium and saying look there's there's so much helium and we know how fast this decays so therefore it must be very old part of what you're trying to prove is th the actual thing they're pointing to that's supposedly demonstrating age is actually showing that these rocks cannot even be that old because they're retaining far too much of this helium to in other words, if the Earth was really as old as they're saying, that helium wouldn't be there anymore. Is that what I'm getting? Well, let me just e explain things a little more completely than I did uh, a moment ago. Uranium also, the two, the two stable end products of uranium decay are, are lead-206 and helium. So we, we can measure, we can, take a, we can take zircons and we can measure how much lead is there. And because uh, when zircon forms, crystallizes, it strongly excludes lead. So it's a good assumption that the, the zircon started out with zero lead inside. So you can, it's a good assumption that all the lead that's in the zircon is a result of uranium decay. So you can count the number of uranium atoms, count the number of uh, lead atoms, and and you have a real good idea of how much decay of uranium to lead has occurred. For each, for each lead atom, there are eight helium atoms produced. So you, by measuring the amount of lead, you also know how much helium was produced. And it turns out that uh, the amount that's still in these zircons that we had, uh, we, we found up to 80% of the total amount of helium that would have been produced by that much decay. And if we look at the rate of that 
that uranium decays into lead today, that corresponded to 1.5 billion years. Okay, so we 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 can in the, in the zircons we can account for the lead, we can account for the helium, but the issue is how could the helium stay in these porous crystals right. so long? Right. And we because we measured how fast it escapes, and it we found that that. It, once it's produced, it'll escape uh, within just thousands of years. So you have basically two clocks uh, in these zircons. One, the, the rate that uh, uranium transforms to lead, that's one clock. It gives a, an age of 1.5 billion years. That's what the secular scientists look at. But there's this other clock of how, how fast the helium leaks out. And that clock says that these zircons are on the order of 6,000 years old. So which clock is right? And uh, so uh, uh, we, we, uh, we said, well, uh, uh, there's, there's this huge discrepancy. And um, according to the, the Bible, the helium clock is, is more likely to be correct. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we said, well, how do, how do we account for so much uh, lead tr- transformation of uranium to lead? Well, this led us to this hypothesis of accelerated nuclear decay. So that if we only had one line of evidence that pointed to accelerated nuclear decay, you could say, well, uh, you can choose to believe the Bible and the, the uh, helium clock. But I'm I'm going to pursue. I'm going to uh, continue to believe in deep time and uh, the constancy of of the decay of uranium into lead being the mm-hmm. same as it is today. But we had two other lines of evidence that that pointed to uh, accelerated nuclear decay, and uh, I'm not sure we have time to f- go into those. One of them one of them has to do with a phenomenon known as uh, polonium halos, radio halos. It also involves decay of uranium in zircons. Uh, but in this case, the, the alpha particles, if the, if the zircon is small, the, the, the alpha particles escape from the zircon and cause damage in the surrounding crystal, uh, often mica. Hmm. And uh, by, uh, anyway, uh, that that line of evidence, uh, if a person's interested, I can point them to the report. But that line of evidence is, is, is in our opinion, is powerful evidence that there had to be accelerated decay for these polonium halos to have formed. So, so let me let me jump in for our, our listeners here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what, I, what I'm hoping that you're grasping from this, and we are going to begin winding it down here in just a few minutes, but... Uh, you know, we, we're touching on several things today, and I'm, I'm glad we got to do that. But what I hope you're seeing here is uh, there are answers to these questions, mm. and it's it's very easy to be uh, assaulted, and you know, it's, I think it's a good word by uh, a weight of consensus and and evidence, and and it is often spoken about as though Christians had never even considered these things, don't even have the capacity to consider these things. Um, but what I hope today can be doing for you is you might not be able to 
uh, you know, understand and track through everything that's being said. I, I think Dr. Baumgartner is doing a great job. Uh, pretty much what I gathered from this is there there shouldn't be this much smoke left in the chimney uh, if it's been burning <laughs> for this long. But uh, that there are those that love the Lord Jesus, believe in God, believe their Bibles, and do have the capacity to study these things and still believe. And so you, you should not be made to feel like a fool for following what the what the scriptures say as you know as well you don't you're not qualified most of the people that you're talking to are not going to be qualified either they're having right. to do the same thing that you're doing but uh it's i i think that this is there's a reason why we we have to maintain this and i i don't i, I i'm with you dr Baumgartner. I, I don't like this trend of saying let's just stop talking about the science mm. of it it's it's modernism and, and we're in a postmodern age now anyway and uh it's it's conceding things that are are wrecking the faith of of an awful lot of people and uh to that end i, I want to ask you maybe i guess maybe one or two more questions here but um returning for a minute to um where you're talking about the the sea floor you were talking about uh you know the the igneous rock and plate tectonics and uh and all of that so uh that's talk, referring to the flood and how the how the flood was uh, scientifically possible, so to speak. Um, how would you could you paint us a picture a little bit of knowing what the scripture says about you know the fountains of the deep being broken open and and all of that? Uh, what what happened geologically when the flood came, as the Bible describes it? Well, there was a a, a cataclysm. I believe it was it's beyond the human mind to even even imagine the intensity of this cataclysm that could entirely resurface the planet in a few weeks' time. Uh, but on one front, it involved the plunging of ocean plate into the interior of the earth and pulling apart plates at the earth's surface at a, at a rate roughly at, at five miles an hour so that all the all, all the all the pre-flood ocean floor uh, was recycled into the interior and all the ocean floor and, and all the present ocean floor was created at a spreading ridge where plates were moving apart. All right. That, that uh, process uh, sort of plate tectonics on steroids also generated a lot of tsunamis. And I just came back from a conference where I presented my latest modeling work on that process how the tsunamis basically uh, uh, eroded huge volumes of rock that the, the turbulence of these tsunamis, the, the, the amplitude of it and the turbulence of these tsunamis transported this sediment onto the continents, spread it out over the continents so that there's aver an average of something like 6,000 feet of new sediment on top of the continents. And, and all the fossils we have today are a result of being buried catastrophically in this in this sediment sequence. And uh, uh, in the in the in the model that I've put together, I had a a a, a mega tsunami generated every one and a half minutes. So over five months, that's one hundred and forty four thousand mega tsunamis. And I had an animation, computer animation of the uh, of the water height over the land and the and the chaotic aspects of that just 
of these all these tsunamis imp impinging on the continents and carrying that sediment <laughs> onto the continents and, and depositing it. So we're, we're talking about a, a cataclysm that the human mind just can't can't even conceive of that produced all of this sediment, these the, the sediment layers you see, for example, exposed in the Grand Canyon. Mm. All those layers were, were created rapidly in just a few months' time. And then after it was all over, the runoff cut the canyon and, and exposed these layers. But uh, it, it, it's so we're talking about a cataclysm that. Uh, 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 produced huge amounts of, of sediment deposited on top of the continents, buried all the fossils, and then afterwards, when it ran off, carved some of the, the, the significant features that we see today and uh, produced the landscape th th that we have today. The, the mountains at the end of this cataclysm rose. It's a, it's a, a big problem for secular geology is why the mountains all rose so so rapidly, so recently, almost simultaneously. Well, it was because the cataclysm was over and these mountains lifted up where the crustal thickness had increased through the cataclysm. So it's uh, uh, one very far and the ice age followed. And just before the ice age, most of the mountain uplift occurred. So uh, I've been modeling all this numerically on a computer and uh, uh, it's been publishing it a little piecemeal, a little bit at a time over the last 30 years. So, so uh, what, what that more or less amounts to is we are living in a world now that if it happened the way the Bible describes it, according to what the science tells us, this is exactly what, what sh we should have expected to happen. That when you, you take the, the, what, Math and and physics and geology all tell us, and the and the world we're living in now, and you just ask the question, okay, well, what if this this did happen? What would it look like? And it's a remarkable how it. That's I mean, you know, unless you're a person of faith, of course, it's like this is just just the way the Lord described it. Yeah, it's most people know it's not their mindset that we're living on a wrecked planet, where the that has experienced the the. Uh, intense wrath of God. And, it, and, and the planet as it was, Peter says, you know, the, the world that once was perished. Yes, sir. That we, we, there's almost, well, there's no place on earth I can point to that is the same as it was before the flood. The, the, the flood changed every square mile of, of the earth's surface. Mm -hmm. So there's not any place on earth that is, has any, bears any resemblance to what it was like before the flood. Uh, so it's we live in, a, in, a, in an entirely different world, and you know it's uh, tantamount. Even though there's beauty everywhere, uh, that it's a wrecked, a wrecked Earth compared with what the original Earth was like. And Dr. Bumgarner, that seems like it's kind of one of the main differences when we're trying to look at these things scientifically. What you've been describing with the the dating systems and the the geology is it really comes down to some of your preconceptions of how you look at the data. And I know creation scientists have been saying this for years, saying, well, here's the data in front of us. It's rock layers. It's, you know, atomic decay. It's numbers that we can measure. But if you're going to pre-assume a uniformitarian model, 
that says that all these processes have only always happened at this speed, then you're going to come to certain conclusions. If on the other hand, like yourself and many of your colleagues, if, if you're going to assume a biblical, what would, we would call like a catastrophist model that says, well, major catastrophes, including the literal judgment of God, have changed some of these processes or made really radical changes in them, then you can, using math, you know, is what I'm hearing from you, you can come to completely different conclusions. And, and the difference is what you bring to the discussion beforehand, your assumptions that you're making prior to looking at the data. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Hmm. Well, I'm going to be bringing us to a, a conclusion here. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, hmm. uh, Dr. Baumgart. I need to get you back and ask you about the Ice Age sometime because that's <laughs> something that, that fascinates me and I wish I knew more about. But let me uh, allow you, as we come to the end here, what would be your message to any pastor or, or minister who's going to hear this that uh, is, is intimidated by these things or maybe just doesn't know what to think uh, after doing this for so long and, and so well, what do you have to say to, to the average person that's going to be speaking and talking on Genesis or the Bible or these things? Well, I would say that the Genesis is right at the heart of the spiritual battle that we're in. And, and, and that you, as a pastor, you simply cannot uh, neglect uh, addressing the issues that are, that, that are right there in Genesis. Uh, you, you, you can't afford uh, to uh, say it's not, uh, you can't afford not to affirm the historicity of Adam and Eve, for example. Uh, and it's very, it's almost impossible to, not to affirm the age of the earth as just a few thousand years. And, uh, and you can't afford not to affirm the fall, the literal fall. And, uh, you know, the, the, and the, 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 the sin that was passed from Adam to all his descendants and the need for a savior. If you start compromising on those, on those points, on those historical realities, you basically are, 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 undermining the gospel you're undermining the reason or the, the you know what what Jesus did on the cross and so I, I would I would plea I would urge the pastors not to not to neglect Genesis not to certainly not to compromise on Genesis but to emphasize uh, the uh, historicity of Genesis and uh, to, to to face the you know to to be courageous, strong and courageous, and 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 defend the word of God. Certainly, Jesus defended. Certainly, Jesus affirmed what Moses wrote. He says, "If you don't believe Moses, how are you going to? How in the world are you going to believe my words?" Uh, and so, uh, uh, so I, I, I would say today. that this is this is at the heart of the battle. It's the reason we are where we are because the, this, uh, the historicity of Genesis has not been upheld for many generations and that it has led to the erosion of the authority of the Bible. So uh, let's retake, let's, let's regain that ground, retake that ground and, and stand firm on the authority of the word of God. Uh, you know, it's, there's one, one, a point in history not that long ago 
a, a preacher could stand up, open the Bible and says, thus saith the Lord. And people would, would take it seriously. And so what, what has happened? And why isn't that the case today? Well, it's because of the erosion of, of the Bible's authority in the minds of most people. And, and most of that erosion has, has uh, started with, in, with compromise on Genesis, on the historicity of Genesis. So if we're going to get back to that uh, point of the Bible being truly authoritative, we, we simply have to, have to return to uh, giving authority to those early chapters of Genesis. Absolutely. Amen. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And if uh, a pastor wanted to, or any listener wanted to learn more about your work and uh, some of the things you've produced and published, where could they find that? Well, I have a website, easy to remember. It's simply globalflood, all one word, dot org. Globalflood.org. Globalflood.org. Now, I apologize that most of my papers are, are rather technical, but, uh, you know, if you, if you, it, 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 it contains the work that I've done over the last 40 years. Uh, I also commend uh, the websites AnswersInGenesis.org, mm. ICR.org, or uh, uh, Creation Ministries. So th- those are the three largest creation ministries, and, and they're good brothers in Christ, and their work I, I, I commend. So, uh, and, and, right. and these other, other ministries are more focused on communicating the truths that I've been talking about to the average person, somebody that doesn't have a lot of scientific training. So if you're looking for some materials uh, <coughs> that you can um, that can answer your questions from where you are, I would point you to those those websites. Mm-hmm. All right, and we'll be sure to link those in the description so that everybody can find them. Dr. John Baumgartner, it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much for coming on. You're most welcome. May the Lord bless you and encourage you greatly. You thank too. You and, and thank you all for listening. We will uh, have some more on this series coming up soon. We hope you all enjoyed it, and we will talk to you all soon. Mm-hmm.